Hello, thank you for listening to an episode of our Valiant Voices conversation series. I am Cheryl Thomas, the founder and executive director of Global Rights for Women, a nonprofit located in Minneapolis, Minnesota, working to end gender-based violence around the world. This episode was recorded on a Zoom webinar. If you would like to attend the next one live, please visit our website, globalrightsforwomen.org front slash Valiant Voices to sign up. Thank you and enjoy listening to our series. Welcome everyone to this session of Vital Voices and the conversation that we have today. I want to first begin with a land acknowledgement. We gratefully acknowledge the indigenous people of the lands we are on today. Even though we are all meeting in a virtual space, it is very important for us to recognize that we have and continue to benefit from the theft and occupation of this land since even before the United States was formed as a nation. Global Rights for Women is located in Minneapolis, Minnesota with staff throughout Minnesota. And we acknowledge that we are on Dakota and Anishinaabe land. We also recognize the historic discrimination and violence that have been inflicted upon indigenous people globally. Additionally, we understand the treatment of indigenous women as a byproduct of colonialism, racism and misogyny that has perpetuated the continued sexual abuse disappearance and murder of indigenous women here in Minnesota and in many places around the world. So please join us now in a moment of reflection to acknowledge the harm of the past and present and to consider how you can join the effort to dismantle the continued oppression of indigenous communities and restore justice. And also, since people are joining here from around the world, at this time, if you would like to put into the chat the land that you are personally acknowledging, we would appreciate that. Thank you so much for coming. This is Global Rights for Women conversation series, Valiant Voices. And I am Lori Flohog. My pronouns are she and her, and I will be today's moderator. I am the Director of Law and Policy for Global Rights for Women, an organization with a mission to end domestic and sexual violence around the world. Valiant Voices is a conversation series created by Global Rights for Women that features the human rights advocates and survivors who are addressing injustice and disrupting oppressive systems that cause harm. These are the stories of powerful leaders creating change in their communities and around the world. We are live streaming on Facebook today and we welcome your comments there or in the Q&A section on Zoom. After the conversation, we will also be sending out a link of the recording. And so I am beyond delighted and pleased to introduce our panelists to you. I'll first introduce Mr. Ulester Douglas as the Deputy Director of Men Stopping Violence. Ulester is a psychotherapist with extensive experience working with families impacted by violence. Ulester is provided training in 40 states, Europe, and the Caribbean to community organizations, universities, corporations, and government agencies. Ulester was appointed as a commissioner to the Georgia Commission on Family Violence. Ulester has authored articles and curricula on family violence and other human rights issues, including the article, Men Stopping Violence's Definition of Male Sexual Violence Against Women. Thank you, Lester. I would also like to introduce Mr. Scott Miller. Scott is the executive director for the Domestic Abuse Intervention Programs. Scott coordinates Duluth's coordinated community response to domestic violence by managing the system change efforts 
and men's nonviolence program. Scott trains internationally on the Duluth model method of organizing. He develops specific community interventions and creates new curricula for communities working to end violence. Scott has co-authored the Domestic Abuse Intervention Program's Men's Nonviolence Curriculum, Creating a Process of Change for Men Who Batter. Scott is an expert witness in criminal and civil trials to explain the tactics of abusers and the associated risks. Thank you so much for his coming, Scott. And then lastly, I would like to introduce Melissa Skaya. In her position of the, as the Director of International Training at Global Rights for Women, Melissa brings a wealth of experience as the former Executive Director of Domestic Abuse Intervention Programs, also known as the Duluth Model. She was the Executive Director of Advocates for Family Peace for 17 years, a local domestic violence advocacy program. She has also led and organized two coordinated community responses to address domestic violence in Minnesota, as well as co-facilitating groups for men who batter and women who use violence. As a qualified expert in the state of Minnesota, Melissa testifies as an expert witness on domestic violence in criminal court cases. Thank you, Melissa, for joining us. Now we're going to first start with some questions for the panelists. And when we think about the today's topic of can he change, we think about how men uh, can come into certain men's intervention programs or battering programs. They may come in through a court order, through either criminal court, family court, they may come in from a referral from Child Protective Services, or they may self-refer. However they come into the program, the question remains, can he change? Or is the question much bigger than that? And this is what we're going to talk about here today. So Melissa, I'm going to first ask you a question. I know that you've talked about and trained others on successfully launching a program for men that is aligned around addressing male abuse of women as a social problem with various systems of oppression versus talking about men's violence as perhaps a mental health problem or a relationship issue or stemming from childhood trauma that must be addressed or linked to some type of addiction issue. Melissa, can you talk more about why this is important, even when some of those other issues may be present? And how do you address this with men in your groups? Yeah, thanks, Lori. And then I'll ask you, Lester and Scott, to, to add on to what I'm going to say. So. The thing that we ha um, have to understand in part is that we're not saying that men who come to our groups don't have chemical dependency, that they don't have mental health issues and they don't have childhood trauma. What we do know though, is that this problem of violence against women gets created by the inherent inequality that exists in our communities, in our cultures. And I know many who live and work in the US think, well, you know, things are better here for women. Women have more opportunity. The reality is though, is that there's still a belief system that abusers have, and that still exists in the culture about the role of women. And so in part, the reason why we get together men in groups is because we see it as a social problem, right? Is that men grow up in this culture, right? And the other piece of it is, you know, I have, I have a young son. Uh, it's been a hard time to raise a young son um, in this culture and the thinking that there is, it's been a real challenge, particularly the last four years have been Five years have been challenging. And so what I would say to that is we're not saying that mental health issues don't exist. What we're saying, though, is that if you don't change the belief system, right, if you don't change the thinking that, for example, when she spends money that you don't want to, you get to hit her over it, right, or you get to throw things around the house. That's thinking that says, 
when you do something I don't like, I get to act like this, right? And so what we're saying is that lots of people have childhood traumas who don't use violence, uh, including women, for example. And so we want those things addressed. But what doesn't get talked about enough is sexism, which is the inherent inequality that um, women experience in the culture um, and still here in, in the US. So Scott, you Lester, add on, what would you have to say about this question? Scott, you can go first. Okay. Yeah, I think that um, that the, uh, the, the there are there are co-occurring struggles that make, can make change difficult. So it, as Melissa said, it's not like we're not going to address them. If there's active chemical dependency going on, it's going to be really tough to um, think through. You know, how have I been socially constructed to think about myself as a man? How have I uh, so I think about my relationship um, with my partner and what I get to do. Um, so those things, you know, are necessary to be addressed. Um, health issues that get in the way of learning, right? All that's true. But we, what we can't do is assume that if we get sober, if we stabilize whatever mental uh, health struggle that, that, is, that is occurring, that somehow all this, these notions these beliefs that Melissa talked about, but what I get to do and how I'm socially constructed to be a man, now I think about that, is just gonna evaporate. Um, those dealing with those co-occurring issues position the individual to be able to make the changes that that you know we're hoping that, he, that, that they do. So, Leo Lester. Can you hear me? Oh yeah, all right. I'll say um, right on to what both, you know, Melissa and, and Scott, you know, have said. I want to zoom in particularly on the issue of, of, of trauma to illustrate this further. One of the things I would encourage if, 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 if we really want to attend to the issue of trauma is to consider patriarchy, white supremacy, those, um, uh, those structural oppression issues that Melissa referenced as forms a form of trauma, or at least um, condition, traumatic conditions. Because when you look at the construction of masculinity that both Melissa and Scott mentioned, it is a destructive one. It does incredible harm to men. And if we really want to spend some time on trauma in the limited time we have in these intervention spaces, I think it can be best used to serve women, children, men, all communities, to look at the damage that, 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 that these structural um, oppressions have done to men and focus in on that because we've all had, most of us have had some form of traumas, childhood traumas, and those spaces aren't the spaces really to, to attend to them. But as far as attending to the issue of may, particularly male violence against women, I hope, I wish that a key part of the curriculum to repeat would be to address the absolute incredibly damage that patriarchal masculinity um, has you know um, employed on, on men's lives. Melissa, I want to follow up with you. So we've talked a little bit about the various systems of oppression uh, and we've talked a little bit about how they can coexist with mental health problems, childhood trauma or addiction. But can you explain uh, a little bit more about, you know, what if there's just a relationship issue? If, if this individual, these two individuals just don't get along or, or don't have communication skills, uh, how do we address that in the larger society? Yeah, well, that's part of it is that a lot of people think that that's the cause of this problem, right, which is that it's a relationship issue and what we say that it's not right, which is that when you enter violence and the thinking and the entitlement that says I get to, you know, tell you what to do where to go how to think that's that's the problem I see in a lot of the work is the wrong sort of applied theory right Lori and what you're sort of talking about is that there's this thinking that if she would just talk about it differently right if if she would have the house cleaner or whatever you know it may be if she wouldn't talk back 
in all those sorts of ways. Um, we have this 911 video that we show in a lot of trainings. And, you know, the, the man is complaining that the wife hasn't done the things that he wanted her to do when he got home uh, from work. And so the problem with that sort of analysis says is that the, the thinking is that violence isn't, it becomes invisible in that sort of analysis. And that's a problem, right? That we don't, we need to think about it differently that when violence enters the relationship, there is a domination sort of role and fear that enters the relationship. And that's not what you have in, you know, sort of when you think about it as a relationship problem. Thank you, Melissa. So Ulester, I want to turn to you now. Your program is one of the nation's best. And when we talk about the million dollar question, can he change? I want to ask you, what does it take? <laughs> How about that, what needs right? to be in place for a man to change? What is his motivation? Yeah. Well, let's start with when we talk about can he change, we uh, want to imagine that all of us would agree, can he change meaning he will discontinue the use of any controlling tactics, aggressive tactics, use of tactics, violent tactics. Can, can he stop those in the context of a relationship and beyond, right? I think it's tempting to, to go the short answer of, of course, he can, but it's much more, I think, complex than that. I think we have to begin with uh, where we are already in, in, in the conversation to think, to give that question some context. And I think an important part of that context has to include how we define in the problem of particularly male intimate partner violence against women. I think we have to start there as a way to address that question. And for me, for men stopping violence after 30, 40 years of doing this work, we are really unequivocal in our belief that again, the root cause of male violence against women is in patriarchy. This is about, again, a socio-political economic structure that insists that men are inherently superior to women and endowed the right to use whatever tactics necessary to quote unquote, keep her in line. And the intimate partner space, the domestic space is just one space in which we get to see patriarchy enacted. We see it in the workplace. We see it in so many other places. This is just the domestic sphere, if you may. And so, if indeed that is true, and I'm convinced it is true, when we talk about can he change, I think the first thing that has to be in place is we have to have a society, all of us, communities that say, this is unacceptable and it will not be tolerated. And you have all of the, the, the systems within the primary micro macro global communities responding in a way in all of its policies, its policies and its practices, and we as individuals within those systems really send in that strong message that violence against women will not be tolerated. We're not there yet. So that has to be the first thing in place because the temptation here is to frame his views, can he change? It reinforces the idea that uh, male violence against women is a problem of individual men, you see? And so if we fix all these individual men, we can rest comfortably that we're really making some meaningful impact on a structural problem. And the truth is, I mean, let me be clear. I think it's important to have those spaces that we have for men to do those work, right? Because there's important work that happened in those spaces. But it would be a mistake to, to really continue to put so much emphasis and believe in that's the solution. It has to be part of it. The bigger part of it is all the structural issues that we are attending to. So if indeed it is not a problem of individual men, again, what we what, what is necessary to repeat is we have to have the kind of community accountability. Where are we? What are we doing to ensure and send that message is unacceptable? Because what, again, at Men Stopping Violence, we've learned over the 40 years we've been doing this work from the men, listening to men is, they're watching to see what they can get away with. I have over and over again, we have a class that we teach sometimes, it was a three hour class, that's a, you know, I can say a lot more about it later on. And Suleiman Nuruddin and I, my, one of my co-instructors, used to um, do an uh, informal survey of the 40 plus men that we saw every two weeks to say, how many of you thought you would be here as a consequence for the behavior that you've, you've enacted on, on your partner? One out of every 40, 45 men. That makes sense to us that he thinks he can get away with it because that's what the culture has done and continue to, to, to do 
to blame victims and to make it possible for men to get away with it. So that's number one. I think the other uh, part that has to be in place is he, if we want to go back to the individual man, he has to, it's got to be self-interest. That is the nature of privilege. Because when you have the system working from you for you on so many levels, there's not much motivation to want to change, right? If we think about white supremacy or you know, racism for white folks, system is working for them. There's not a lot of motivation to want to do anything about it. It's got to be oftentimes self-interest regretfully. So there have to be some understanding and belief there's consequences for me if I use this behavior. It's got to be belief that um, I'm going to benefit somehow by investing in, in, in change, self-interest. And third, I would often say when I'm asked, hey, if there's one piece you would have in the curriculum, what would it be? And I said, undoing those internalized messages, training about what it means to be a man, what I'm calling patriarchal masculinity. Those tenets, those ideals have been internalized. And part of that includes the will to use violence. The idea that those who are deemed weaker must be controlled, that includes women and children in particular, to really go after deconstructing that and offering men uh, an alternative to this kind of vitriol masculinity. I think those are things, um, Laurie, that I think would need to be in place for men to change. When we talk specifically, Lester, about motivation to change. So you talked a little bit about how if he is benefiting from his position in society as you know the, the person that receives and, and is able to walk through his world um, benefiting from patriarchy, then when we talk about motivation, I'm thinking about uh, when an individual is, you know, when a man is court ordered to attend a program versus somebody who, you know, so he has that external motivation to at least show up and attend uh, the program. And then we also have perhaps a, a single individual who maybe is having problems in his marriage or in his relationship and maybe a therapist has recommended um, that he go to this program and he has some type of internal um, motivation in, in that he just doesn't want to get divorced or doesn't want his partner to leave him. So can you speak a little bit about, uh, again, a little bit about that internal and external motivation and what are you seeing within your groups? Sure, I get that question often. I think there's a belief by many that men who are quote unquote self-referred somehow do better in these programs than men who are um, required by the court to, to participate in the program. That's not our, our, our experience. I think again, that idea of self-interest is a really important one because those of us who do this work can testify how few, few men enter into these spaces really motivated to want to do differently. The narrative, the conversation invariably is about her. And basically if she would get her S together, you know, everything would be all right. Very few men really believe the, you know, the behavior, there's something problematic about their behaviors and that it is necessary to want to change it. It's, it's her, it's everything, but, but him more often than not, that's the narrative. And so um, it, it's a tall order. There are many men who shift and get to a space and go, okay, I see there's something here for me. But it's very, very difficult, I think, for a lot of men to get there for the reasons I, I just described. Um, but I think, I'll, I'll, I'll pause it. I think I'm answering your question, but I think I might be uh, missing a part of it. If, I, if I'm not, could you? Um, Repeat about Lister and Scott. Could. Yeah, you Lester, I just want to add a part, which is I think the other piece is that those who are entitled don't tend to self-regulate, right? They don't tend to sort of, um, you know, look, look internally at themselves. So in part, what we need sometimes is for those to intervene. I think there's a big question about who should be the intervener sometime. It's up for debate at this current time. But I do think that with um, many men have come into our groups at, um, 
at Pathways to Family Peace and at DAIP and others and just said, you know, this isn't something that I ever thought that I needed, right? I thought I was right. I thought she had all these problems and this really helped shift that for me in part kind of what you were saying, uh, you Lester. Scott, do you wanna to add to that? Yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, I, 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 th I, I was thinking of a, a, a question that's, that Susan Faludi, who's a author, uh, wrote in one of her books where she said, all social movements have essentially been against white privileged men. And what is their incentive? Yes. <laughs> right? The only one that hasn't created a social movement is white privileged men. Why? Because everything works for them. Because um, that was who it was designed for. So when you're at the top of that hierarchy, then what is the incentive um, to change, especially when one of the beliefs, core beliefs is that I'm always right, as Melissa was talking about. Um, and if I'm always right, then somebody else is always wrong. Um, so, and then I also think about a guy who, which always has resonated with me since, um, when the guys get done in our program, they get to say whatever they want at the end of the, the last few minutes of the group. And He's, and I asked him, I said, how are you going to stay straight? How are you going to keep things um, uh, you know, going in a direction where you don't lose your family, you don't get arrested, you don't have all of this stuff in your life? And he said, um, he said, do you know how many times I'm invited to be the guy who got me here every day? Mm -hmm. Going back to what Alessia said, every institution I go to, I go to church, I get reinforced. I mean, there's always supposed to be pants and there's supposed to be mine and I'm the one who's supposed to be wearing them. Mm -hmm. and, and and, and yet I go to this one room yes. in my life that has a different way of thinking about it. And this is supposed to, you know, like help me change, right? Like I'm up against an, a wall of encouragement to be the kind of man that got me here. Mm -hmm. And um, and so that goes back to what you, Lester, were talking about. You know, we focus so much on, uh, I think, and, and I'll say more about this in a bit, but more on individual men as opposed to thinking about how do we change the, the the community which created the problem in the first place that these men are coming out of so yeah i mean the work is bigger than open you know i said this years ago if if your job is to is to show up at an agency unlock the door and wait for the referrals it's not enough right yeah. <laughs> you've got to get out yeah. into the community Scott, yeah. that's a great story. That's so powerfully illustrated. I think what Melissa, you and I are saying, right? That is a yeah. really good example of it. And it begs, it really then, going back to where I started, situates that question of can he change in, in broader context? Because yeah. it is fundamentally a different question from what are we willing to do to advance against women? Right. Right. And that, what we're just saying, is really where it's at. We've got to, you know, the communities have to assume more responsibility to the problem, locate ourselves in the problem in the ways in which we contribute to it. And by the way, a quick plug, we have um, an article that was published in the Journal of Violence Against Women, which speaks to our community accountability model. I would encourage you to check it out that um, um, it illustrates a lot of what we're talking about today. It's called the Men's Stop and Violence Community Accountability Model. And it can be found on our website, menstopandviolence.org. But yeah, thanks for that story, Scott. What a powerful illustration of what you, Melissa, and I are saying. Yeah, I, I think one other just quick thing about that is that one of the things that we've asked men before, we've said, tell us about, go back to the time when you were arrested or had the protective order put against you, and tell us a little bit about when your community found out about that, your family, your friends, your coworkers, what did they say, right? And it gives you a real insight into what you're talking about, you Lester, right? About, because then those people are not saying to him something like, you know, I'll support you, but I won't pay things for you. This isn't right. You don't get to talk about her, right? They're not saying those things. They're saying things to him like, you, sh you know, next time hit her where the cops don't see it and all of the other things you can, you can imagine. So as a follow-up to that, then, when we have, uh, throughout the world, we have uh, individuals who are in over-policed communities, uh, underrepresented, under-policed communities, to what extent should the court systems or law enforcement be intervening in men's lives, especially in the lives of people who are under-policed or over-policed? And, and how do you create 
that type of accountability that also respects the human rights of all men involved. Would like to speak on that. You, Lester? I'd like to start on that. That's, that's some great questions. Um, I would say as little as possible way it doesn't jeopardize women's safety, right? Mm -hmm. So to the extent it doesn't compromise safety, as little as possible to keep law enforcement, the criminal legal system out of it. And I'm saying that, of course, as you might imagine, from the lens of a, a black man living in America, certainly speaking in this country, and hopefully most folks understand why that is. That is not a place where black folks go to seek redress justice, certainly not. And that I'm saying the voices of black women, I'm not just speaking as a black man, this is what black communities are saying. That is a dangerous space, you know, to, to get redressed. So as little as possible. Um, and, and, and again, for so many, many, many reasons, but I want to just highlight one, maybe less obvious one. And that is, those, that system represents so much of the, so embodies the very things we're trying to undo with men, right? It embodies it. Dominance, control, violence, you go on and on and on. Why would we look to the very place that we're trying, you know, <laughs> we're trying to undo? You, I think you got it. And then in terms of the issue of accountability, I think of, I mean, I know we, you know, all have different definitions of accountability. You know, one of the ways I think about it, it's the antithesis to collusion, right? It's, it's ensuring that we are not participating in the denial, you know, justification, et cetera, et cetera. Of, uh, in terms of the acts of aggression, violence that many men use. I think an essential part of accountability that does not disrespect individual human rights, human dignity, is we've got to locate ourselves in those parties. We've got to see ourselves in him. We are the work. That is a core principle um, at Men Stopping Violence, that even as instructors, our work is not done it is ongoing, be it, you know, around racism, sexism, heterosexual, you name it, it is ongoing work. For again, going back to the story that's got this, 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 this shared, when we leave that space, we're going back into a system that reinforce the very thing that we're trying to undo. That's only two hours or hour and a half a week. So by being able to locate ourselves, see ourselves in these participants, identify with them, I think we have a greater um, chance of respecting their human dignity and be able to hold them accountable in the way we want to. It's the us and them, the otherfication, they're different. You know, you know, you find all the ways that make possible, I think, disrespect and the assault and their human rights, their human dignity. Thank you for that. Yeah. Scott, Melissa, do you have anything to add well to that? When I would just add a related to that, I think what you Lester is saying in part is, is that what I see too many communities do is just try what other communities do and not speak with survivors. And so, you know, there's this to you Lester's point, right, which is that to find the thing that's safest for women with the least intervention is to find that out for women. When is the last time any of the people on this call or this, you know, uh, talk have gathered women to find out, right? Who do you call when, when you need help because he's committing violence, right? And what would be helpful? In some communities, that is the police. In other communities, it's not, right? And so part of it is that there, we, we're, we have to find out what is most helpful to women and what will help keep them safe. And I think that in many, many communities, we, we just don't know. And that too many communities I've gone to now over Zoom, you know, not, not in person, but you find a lot of smart people sitting around the table who've never gathered, you know, women who were survivors to find out what they think about what they're doing. And that's a fundamental problem for me. So I, my encouragement is for people to, to gather women in that regard. And also, of course, the acknowledgement, you know, that police, the history of policing, of course, is, is very, um, you know, what, its roots is also very troubling and part of the patriarchy, we, we also know um, as well. Scott? Yeah, I, you know, I, 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 I don't know where to start. I mean, there's just so much, right? Like, this is great. Um, 
so one of the things in between what Ulyssa and Melissa were, 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 were saying is, I don't get to choose where women should call, right? I need to ask women, where do you call for help? And it does it help? And if it doesn't help, then I have an obligation to try and transform whatever that system is. So if you're talking to women in the military, for example, who are being battered on, the, on, on base, um, civilian law enforcement isn't gonna be helpful because they're not, they don't have jurisdiction. Um, on base, I need to know that my CO is not going, is gonna actually do something about this that's gonna be safer for me, but that I can't trust that. So that isn't a resource, like where do I call, right? Where's my space? Um, then we, we did a project with women in the uh, evangelical faith traditions here in Duluth. They didn't call law enforcement. The government was not a resource to them. Um, not because they were they were against it, but because they didn't want to bring the secular community into their community. So their first call was their pastor. So we had to organize with the pastors because that was their call for help, right? Um, we have a project going right now with a group in, in Hawaii that's doing really exciting work in indigenous communities. And again, law enforcement isn't their resource. But when they did focus groups with the women, as Melissa was talking about, they found out within community, there was no place for them to call either. Um, so now they have to develop a spot with a space inside of community where they can talk about what's happening to them and not worry that, the, uh, that there's gonna be something worse that comes because they, they've voiced um, the struggle that they're having. So, I mean, we need to create the kinds of spaces for survivors to say, this is what's happening to me and I need help, right? And, and, and then what does it look like? They can tell us what it's gonna look like, um, but we just have to ask and we don't spend the time. I mean, we just, we spend too much time trying to replicate what somebody's done someplace else like Melissa was talking about, rather than think through for this community geographically, right? If I'm in the middle of North Dakota, that's a whole different focus group than if I'm in Hawaii talking to indigenous communities, or if I'm in Western Ontario talking to fly-in indigenous communities, right? I mean, that's a very different conversation as far as resources, who they call, what the leverages are to get a guy to go to a program that he doesn't want to go to, right? They're all going to be different. And, and, and we really have to be better at developing responses to our location um, and, and really find out what women in our locations are saying that they need um, than just replicating what somebody's done someplace else. Yeah, I think the same is true. Oh, I'm getting some feedback, sorry. I think the same is true, Scott, also for men's programs, right? That uh, yeah. a big gap I see for men's programs is, you know, when's the last time they've talked to a woman or an advocate, right? There's a lot of advocates in this country or crisis center staff around the world for those who are global. And so the other thing we often see is this disconnect between men's groups and advocacy programs. And so when you're facilitating groups, you have to have women's experiences in your head, right? So when he says, for example, well, she just spends all my money, that's what she does. Well, okay, so that may be his reality. But what I know from a lot of women, because I've talked to a lot of women and make sure I do often, is a lot of women have said to me, I can't hit him back, I can't punch him, I can't do the thing, but I can spend his money and that's a thing I can do to him, right? Now that's a different context. Now you wouldn't know that and it's easy to collude, right, with men unless you have women's experiences and stories in your head for the purposes of men's groups uh, as well. And so specifically to the the model that uh, you utilize, uh, Melissa, Scott, and Lester, uh, would you have a recommendation as to how that works? Um, is, is it the type of thing where if there is an individual man within this group that you're contacting his partner on a regular basis, or are you doing mm -hmm. a collective of, of completely different women? So how does that look? Yeah, I mean, I would say that that's a whole other sort of piece of our work, Lori. I'm sort of talking about it in general, right? Which is that facilitators have to have women's experiences of oppression in their head, 
because what they're hearing is entitlement. And so when a lot of people sort of say, you know, what should I look at for in a curriculum? I would say if there's exercises that look like any couple where there's no violence could do it, it's a red flag to you, right? Because it's not making the violence present, right? And so those are the sorts of things that we have to look for. If they're not addressing masculinity, right? Like you Lester and Scott have said, that's a big red flag to you, right? In terms of, of what's happening. So what I'm sort of talking about is lots of men's groups operate completely independent of any women's groups and never talk to them, right? So if you're gonna, you're gonna inherently collude with men if you don't have that experience, right? You're just going to, because you, and if you, you, you have to even know it, you know, like I was an advocate many years ago, I still volunteer as an advocate. So I know what it's like today, right? There's, if there's a difference today in the culture, right? So I have that in my head when I'm talking um, with women. Scott, yeah, speaking of, yeah, yeah, speaking of um, again, um, our principle, we are the work. We as facilitators got to do all work. Because what you're talking about there, Melissa, is the, the replication again of a key part of patriarchy, which is making invisible women's voices and how easy that is, that can happen, right? She just disappears in that room and there we go. We're right there trying to do the work and enacting key part of patriarchy. Women's experiences disappear. Yeah. In this case, survivors, yeah. So Scott, I now want to, to turn to you. So we've been talking a little bit about, uh, you know, this whole, um, the change in way we advocate for safety and putting accountability on people who are causing harm um, and, and making sure that there's the important aspect of any type of programming is centered around survivor needs and safety. So how do we measure success? Um, how do you keep survivor needs and survivor safety front and center for both the man and his partner uh, or former partner, when you have this whole male behavior change program, and and you know we know that we have to challenge the thinking of society, change you know again the ways that we we advocate. But how do we measure success? Well, I just like to go back a little bit um, to that one, and and you Lester, what you just said just kind of like the greatest segue into what I'm going to talk about here but um is how I was I was I had I had about 100 advocates that in a training one time and I split them down the middle and there's 50 on this side and 50 on this side and I said okay this side I want you we talk about safety and accountability all the time I want this side to talk about what is safety and this side to talk about what is accountability and we gave him 30 minutes, we came back, and there was no agreement as to what that even means, right? And so, but we are designed on safety and accountability, yet we don't spend the time to think through what those things mean, right? So, uh, you know, Lester, Melissa, myself, we do lots of training for people who do this work in the space. And one of the things that I've, I've heard many, many times is that uh, um, I want to, 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 to do something working with uh, uh, men in this space that makes our community safer, right? Um, but then I'll say, okay, so when you've developed your policy, when you've developed your program, when you've thought about your, the curriculum, you're gonna, like all that stuff, how much was her safety vetted through all of those decisions, right? Well, we only allow three absences um, and then he's out. Okay, well, Oh, that, that, okay, that's fine, but how does it improve her safety, right? Now, it may, I don't, I'm not saying whether it does or doesn't. What I'm saying is, is that the thought hasn't been put into it about how that could negatively impact her safety or not. Um, the other thing is that most of us in these programs are dealing with poor men, right? Um, and so, You've got a you get a guy who comes in who's got a forty hour a week job, who's getting paid twenty bucks an hour. Um, that's going to be more than the average guy that we work with. So, his resources to get to group on a weekly basis to show up on a Tuesday evening at five thirty every week are going to be greater 
than the guy who's living at the, at, 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 at the Chum homeless uh, drop-in in Duluth. So are my policies created for the people with resources or are they flexible to the people who are gonna have a harder time struggling to get in, right? So there's, there's, if we are doing this work from a social justice point of view, right? It's gonna make it more complicated to talk about how many, how many times the guy is missed and whether or not that, that person should be suspended, right? Um, because not everybody's the same. Not everybody comes to, the, to, to, to our groups from the same place within the community. And their partners are positioned differently, right? So um, we know that most of the women that, of the partners that we work with don't want communication from this program on an ongoing basis, but some do, right? Um, and we wanna know from them, what's it like? How, what's the impact of our program? Is it helping? It, and for the most part, what we hear is that when he's in class, it's better for us, right? So then that influences our decision about suspensions, back to court, right? Um, you Lester talked, you Lester talked about how, um, you know, we're relying on a system that's counter to the very things we're creating in the re in our in our men's groups, right? Um, and so the system, their the way that they would talk about getting to safety is by holding an offender accountable, by imposing their will and saying you're going to do these things, right? If we take on that same definition, and we we well we have to hold him accountable in our men's group. Well, what are you going to do? What do you basically? What are you going to impose on him, right? Um, as opposed to creating a space where he feels safe enough to unpack enough, where he can begin to see the injustice of what he's done, and hold himself accountable. Now you've, you're talking about some real change space, right? Um, you're not going to get, you might, he might get to the class because somebody's imposing their will, but he's not going to necessarily change because of that. He's going to have to have a, he's going to have to have a different kind of space to figure out who he is as a man and how he got here and where he wants to go. Um, so what happens is that our laws are based on whether individuals break them. So you get individuals sent to your program and we don't, going back to this conversation about, um, I think somebody asked it in the, in the question at Q&A or the chat, I think it flashed up on my screen. How do you bring the social into the, into the room? You, you, you work with the men collectively. This is a collective problem, right? It's not Jim and Steve and Al and Bob and, and, and Joe's problem. Right, they all share a problem, and that, and and how they share that problem, and how they learn that, um, as men, is the collective conversation that you have that brings in to your to, to the dialogue, the, uh, the the social conditions um, that shaped them and that they're up against when they leave that room. So, um, so, so you know, uh, I think I've actually forgot the initial question, but. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping it was a good answer. <laughs> of course you have. Of course, thank you. No, so we're talking about, you know, how do we measure success and how do we, uh, you know, again, centering survivor needs and, and safety and keeping that uh, front and center um, in any type of male behavior program. So we have a lot of questions and a lot of comments within the chat and we have about 10 minutes left. And so I think that, uh, that we want to go ahead and, and maybe ask some of these questions. So you've said that the root cause of intimate partner violence is patriarchy is this system. And so what happens when people aren't agreeing that patriarchy is the root cause? If we can't agree on the root cause of the program, where do we go from there? And, and, and 
when we have people who are thinking that intimate partner violence is an equal issue for men and women and and we have women who are using resistive violence can you talk a little bit about that you lester melissa scott um, well, I just say that I was recently on a call uh, with some practitioners who are doing women's group. And I think the thing about it that was so hard for me is that the there's a bit still of this universal thinking that we think of all violence as the same, right? And so, and what I sort of see in this um, uh, that discussion in particular is that there's a lack of analysis of seeing the social structure of the problem. And so part of it you have to understand is that when the three of us sort of say this is that we don't need just us to think it in men's group, right? Like I remember when I started in group in uh, working as a as Scott's boss, as I like to say, when I was Scott's boss and I was at a probation meeting and a probation officer talked about patriarchy, it was like about fell off my chair because it was the first probation meeting, right? And so I knew I was in a different place when I worked in Duluth, when the analysis amongst all the providers was the same. It's different, right? When everybody sees the problem is the same. So to your question, Lori, my point is that you're not gonna have a coordinated community response, right? When a guy hears 10 different messages about what he's done, right? It's, it's not, you're not setting up um, a successful community for him to change. You Lester? Well, I would say it, it makes sense to me that um, some of us struggle to want to look at, um, you know, structural inequality as, prob mm -hmm. as problematic. Let me just emphasize again, and I feel very, very strongly about this. Again, I think it is strategic, speaking here in the United States, to want to continue to frame so much about social ills as problems of individuals. It is to serve the interest of the powerful. Take race, the continued investment in terms of the challenges that people of color have in, in this country, to frame it as their own shortcomings rather than to all go back to the history and all the structural stuff that is put in place that makes it difficult for people of color to actualize their full potential in this country, right? Whom does it serve to frame it as an individual? Okay, you can fill in the blank, right? Around gender, yeah, and I understand it's a social construct. Likewise, oh yeah, just make it about these few individual bad guys who have a problem and just fix them and everything will be fine. Whom? Whose interest does that serve? It's not women in, women's interest, right? Because there's a structural arrangement there that is making it difficult for, for, for women to actualize the full potential in this country. And again, not just in the interpersonal domestic sphere, every other place, this is just one area we are focusing on. So I understand that that is in so-called the DNA, the control rooms of the DNA of America to want to continue to push back as you watch marginalized folks make gains is push that individualism. It is strategic. So I really employ us to really push against that because again, at minimum, with all these intervention programs, I don't know of anything empirical here, but so few men who are assaulting, abusing women, the many ways in which we do ever end up in any kind of intervention. Probably 5%, 10%. If you want to even be generous and say 50%, are we interested in ending violence against women? or what? So I think that that's my, I, I can hear my, my concern about that. It's like, this is not about psychopathology, fix a few bad guys and we all will be well. So I think to me, in short, Laurie, to ask those who want to invest in, in framing it differently is, what are we trying to do? End violence against women or is there a different agenda? Yeah. There was a, you know, all three of us do work internationally. And so, you know, if, if, just to take what, build on what Lester was saying, you know, I mean, either you have a lot of mentally ill men around the world <laughs> or, or, you know, when I was doing a, a training in Trinidad, Tobago, and uh, I asked a, uh, a law enforcement officer, I said, so when you, you're arresting somebody 
in Trinidad for domestic assault, what is the most typical reason you get as to why they committed the act of violence? And uh, she said, uh, I told her to do something and she didn't do it. <laughs> okay, right? Mm -hmm. Like that sounds just like the guys in Duluth, which sounds just like the guys in Atlanta, which sounds just like the guys in Hawaii, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a global mm -hmm. socially constructed problem of, of, of patriarchy and, um, mm -hmm. and it's deep. Um, and, and, and it's also interesting to me that when I work with um, indigenous communities, when they look at our, our materials and they look at our power and control wheel, um, for example, they look at the wheel and they say, well, there's not much to change on that wheel because that's colonization. That's, mm -hmm. that's what the, all those tactics are the tactics of, of, of colonizers. Um, and that's, what, that's what's been imposed upon our people, right? Mm. We have a, but then the equality wheel, that's what changes because they have a, a different uh, value system that was, that was traditional to them that was very different than what that, what's on that power and control wheel. The power and control wheel is just how men who batter use those tactics of oppression that they were taught. Um, so it, it isn't, again, just individuating this to men who, who do this. This is what the culture teaches right? Um, this is the oppression that's thick in the air we breathe. Um, I forgot how you phrased that, you illustrated, but the, uh, what did you say, the control room, or how do you, <laughs> you'll see, you'll see it on the recording. I don't have keys <laughs> in that room, but uh, <laughs> I'd like to know where that, where that is. Yeah. I think, Lori, the other thing I was thinking about is our work at Global Rights for Women, too, to your point, you Lester, which is there, I've now worked at Global Rights for Women for five years, and there is no other place but the United States and maybe England that this is the biggest discussion as it is about the individual versus the yes. social problem. Everywhere else, it's a social problem. It's agreed upon. We go to meetings. It's everyone agrees about it. It's only in the United States predominantly where this is as big of an issue uh, as it is. And, and, and research, you know, have, have, have supported the idea how much America is an outlier in that tension between individualism and collectivism. We are way yes. out there. So this is a manifestation of exactly that. Back it is. Know. Yeah, sure. So we have just a few minutes left and we have so many questions that we literally could be here for hours. Uh, one of the last questions that I want to ask, um, and it's kind of a shift, in light of our current ongoing pandemic, to what extent have has uh, conducting so many of these groups in a virtual format, just like we're doing here today with this conversation, has uh, the use of the virtual format reduced or increased effectiveness? Um, can you speak to that a little bit in our last minute here? Well, that's, Melissa, a big, that's a big question for a, for a minute. <laughs> so, so just very, because I would just say that we're, we're learning about it, right? I mean, we're learning about many things in this place. I think the one thing I'll just say is that we have found by doing our research project that I did with John Heath is that we found men have opened up more. I don't know what that means for the long run with men who've been able to have technology in space and lots of men have not been able to have technology in the space. But for those who have, we have found that that's uh, generally been the case. And we've seen an increase in volunteer men uh, as well. Yeah, Thank I'll, you. I'll just stop there. Well, we are at the end of our time. And I would like to thank our guests, Eulester, Melissa, Scott, for talking with us today. I would also like to thank so many participants for being here today, for providing uh, such uh, engaging questions. I'm sorry that we were not able to get to all of them today. I would also like to thank my colleague, Sophia Morissette, for ensuring and making sure that this conversation goes smoothly on the technological side. And we have provided links in the chat so that we can learn more. And if you would like to support Global Rights for Women, your contribution goes to supporting the work of advocates around the world, centering survivor voices as the means to achieving systemic change.
You are going to receive an email in the next few days for all of the participants with resources as well as a link to today's recording. And once again, thank you so much for being here. It was an absolute honor to share this space with all of you. And we hope that you join us again for one of our upcoming listing sessions. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Valiant Voices. We hope you were able to take away something meaningful from our conversation. If you'd like to learn more about our organization, Global Rights for Women, and how you can be part of the movement to end violence against women and girls, please visit our website, globalrightsforwomen.org. And thank you.